I went to my daughter Rachel and Jason's home the other day and to spend time with my, my grandchildren and um, Bella, who is almost, she's almost three, she's headed towards three, came up to me and she puts her hands up in the air and she says, I want to hold you, right? <laughs> I want to carry you, something like that. And I'm thinking what she means is she wants me to carry her. And of course, it, my heart melts. That was circulating as we were singing the song, Be Lifted Up, as if somehow, I love that song. We should do it every week. Um, <laughs> as if somehow I would have the ability to actually raise and lift the almighty creator of the universe. There is something true about that song and something really childlike because um, for whatever reason, we, we would word it the way we would word it, that we were going to lift up God and we need to lift him up. And, and the Lord inhabits the praises of his people and things will happen in your life and in your heart if you choose to humble yourself to the king and uh, push everything of God higher than everything else in your life. And um, at the same time, he does the lifting, doesn't he? Yeah. Doesn't he do all that? Anyway, so thanks for leading us the way you did. It was really, really wonderful. And um, I, I get so distracted. I'm on rabbit trails even during worship. Anyway, okay, so um, today you're going to get three Proverbs of the day. Um, one later, two now, and the two now you're going to get are not actually Proverbs. Okay, so we're breaking some rules today. Okay, so um, one from last week because it was snowy, and um, today's proverb is actually in the message itself. Um, and we, uh, we had snow last, we, last Sunday, so we did a small Bible study for those who showed up, and I didn't share this. Proverbs eighteen fourteen: a man's spirit will endure sickness, but a crushed spirit, who can bear? And then I also um, was in Psalms, so this, I know it's not a proverb, but here's another proverb of the day. Psalm 68, 5, a father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy habitation. So um, I, love the, I love the Proverbs and the Psalms anyway. So um, uh, they're not part of the message, but, you know, I've got this habit, right? Okay, so getting into the message, Terry. I, I have this, this habit of, um, you know, I, I've got this, these memories, just wonderful memories of coming home from the hospital with our babies. And um, maybe you have great memories. And I was pretty arrogant and self-confident as a young man. Um, and the Lord has... He's working on that. Just give it a chance. Give, give me some time. Um, but you just cannot imagine how self-assured I was bringing home my first child and thought I knew everything and things were going to be fine because I had it all worked out in my mind. And um, Ben was born, um, uh, you know, he, was, he, was, he wasn't just, let's go to the hospital and have a baby kind of a thing. It took a while. In fact, it was, he ended up after several days of being in emergency, kind of in the middle of the night C-section and more days in the hospital, all that kind of stuff. And by the time we brought him home, we were really ready to. And I was ready to prove my fatherly manhood and take care of business. And of course, Lisa, um, anxious to get into the shower after having been in the hospital, you know, you don't get a shower in the hospital for several days or whatever. So she, we come in, and she just, oh, I'm going to go get in that hot water shower. I said, I got this, and um, I thought, you know, first thing I'm going to do is I, I don't, I'll just prove to her, I'm just going to prove to her and to him what a man I am. I'm going to change his diaper. And I, um, <laughs> and I, it's, it's within minutes that the Lord uh, reminded me that my road was just beginning because I had brought home this cross between an air horn, a geyser, and a velociraptor because he just, you know, I, I set him on that deal and, and I don't know if it was the cold air or what, but things went nuts. In every way that you were possibly imagining at this moment, it all happened. And the Lord said, okay, step one, get through this and we'll get to some hard stuff later. And um, uh, I mean, I, I, I remember maybe there was some murmuring or something. I don't know going on. But Lisa could hear me in the shower. And, you know, it's like, are you okay out there, Terry? Is my son, what did you do to my son? You know, kind of a thing. And I don't, we did, I don't know if it really happened like that. But I just, you know, are you, are you too okay? And I said, you know, I, I, my, I think at the time I was probably thinking something along the lines of, I, I don't really even remember what his face looks like. I've been at the other end for so long here. And... Um, <laughs> That's a long way of getting around the mountain to basically say it's really important that you deal at the correct end of things in life. And today I want to move this topic <laughs> to the 
um, more important things, and I want to talk to you today about um, the right part of your life, your soul, your soul. And I want to talk to you specifically about how to prevent what I'm going to call soul robbers from breaking in and killing and destroying your soul and the soul of your family members. Now, I'm not going to get into the theological fine points today to discuss whether we are a a bipartite soul or a tripartite body, mind, and spirit. I'm not going to get into that, although that'd be a fun discussion to get into and a study for another time. That's not the point. The point I want to talk to you about is that inner part of you that the Bible so often refers to as the soul. Um, I was, um, I'm kind of curious, um, about how things work, and I'm always studying things, and, and uh, I'm a little bit of a nerd, and so I was kind of looking into um, home security systems, and uh, what do they cost? Because, you know, technology is changing, and, and I know they're all over the map, and so I've talked to a couple people who build homes, and, and they basically say, well, your average person who's building a house will spend maybe between 1000 and $1,500 to put in a, a home security system. You know, they can be less, and they can go way up, way past that as well. But that's about what people will spend on the average if they're going to put a, a security system in their home. And, and that makes perfect sense. Um, um, I mean, here's, here's a f- couple of statistics for you. I mean, we're kind of right on the edge between Thurston and Lewis County. So let me give you some stats for both. Thurston County's burglary rate is 109% of the national average. So a little worse than average. Lewis County's a little worse than that, 115% of the national average. But, and securing your home is, is smart. It's smart to put an alarm system and to secure your stuff and, and so forth. But, um, you know, that'll secure your stuff. But it won't secure the stuff that's more important, your soul. And so how do you protect your souls? You know, what, 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 what activities do we need to watch out for? What are the practices? What sights and sounds what, you know, are getting into your home and breaking it down? Johns Hopkins um, University did a study of grade school age children to see what they're afraid of. Interesting how things have changed. Um, If you look back into the 1980s, here are the top five things grade school age children were afraid of in the 1980s. Animals, number one, animals. Number two, being in a dark room. Three, high places. Four, strangers. Five, loud noises. Okay, 30 plus years later, um, within the last 10 years, same questions, things have changed. Number one, school-aged children, what's the number one thing you're afraid of? Divorce. Number two, nuclear war. Number three, yeah. (laughs) Number three, cancer. Number four, pollution. Number five, being mugged. And there are probably some other things that our children should be more concerned about. Um, things that, and, and I think for the most part, they're mostly unaware of those things. I mean, technology, for example, is, is, is changing so fast today and it brings things you know, right straight into our homes, into our laptops, and into our phones. And you can go anywhere and see anything you want to see and you never even have to leave your home for it. Um, an example is YouTube. Um, I like YouTube. There's some great cat videos on YouTube. <laughs> and I'll just leave it at that. Um, YouTube alone, um, right this moment, there are, between, between, between the time we started church and ended church, over four or 500 new videos will have been uploaded. 400 videos an hour, or excuse me, excuse me, it's 400 videos a minute get uploaded onto YouTube. Every minute, 400 more. Five Billion with a B, videos are watched every day on YouTube. In the average month, eight out of ten adults in the United States watch something on YouTube. So most of you have been on YouTube this this month. There's nothing wrong with it. It's kind of fun, you know. Um, Dominoes, remember domino videos on? Okay, so we that was a couple weeks ago. Um, people write, and, and as of 2016, people watched annually 46,000 years of content. It's just, just an unimaginable amount of, uh, the first video that ever went up on YouTube was in 2005. Some guys put a video up of a birthday party because it was too big to send by, by way of email. They posted it. Within six months of the startup of, of YouTube, there were, people were watching eight million videos a day. That's, an exp- that's just a, a phenomenal rate of growth. 
information coming towards us and, and, and coming into our homes is accelerating all the time towards us and our families. One scientist was studying how fast knowledge is growing in our culture, and he said that knowledge took 1,800 years to double from 100 B.C. to the year 1700. It took, it took that long to double. It doubled again in 200 years. And then the next time it doubled, it took 50 years. By 1950, it was doubling in 50 years. And then again, in 19, it doubled again by 1970. That's 20 years. Then it doubled again by 1980, just 10 years. Then by 1988, just eight years. Now it doubles every 12 months. Scientists are saying today that it's going to start, it's going to grow to the point where it doubles every 12 hours. Information is coming at us just as like crazy. Well, um, I, I think the problem for us isn't that we have too little information, it's that we have too much, and it's coming from every direction possible. So I want to get into God's word, and we're going to look today at through all, all of this through the eyes of a guy named Nehemiah, and uh, see what he did in bringing protection to those he loved and he cared about, because he understood um, that Jerusalem needed to be protected, and that it was vulnerable, and he understood something, that the gates need to be guarded, and the walls need to be built up. Okay, so we're going to get into Nehemiah. And I'm, I'm going to suggest to you right up front that we need to have the same kind of approach, that the, that the, the walls need to be built up and the gates need to be mended, the, the walls within our souls and the walls within the souls of our family. And so if you, we can sort people into three basic groups, people who, who make things happen, people who watch things happen, and people who just are, you know, they have no idea what's going on around them, okay? And Nehemiah, too many people, are, by the way, are in that last group. They're just not really aware of what's going on around them. Um, Nehemiah was in the first category. He saw things and decided to make them happen. And so I'm going to lay this out now, and we're going to take more time on this as we go, but to, to prevent soul robberies from happening, three things that we need to do. One, we have to ask the right questions. Two, we have to have the right reaction or response to those questions. And then we need to take the right action. The right question, the right reaction, and then the right action based on what we see. So let's get into Nehemiah chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, it came to pass in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel. Okay, this is, a, this is describing modern-day Iraq. It's, it was called Persia in ancient times, three, two, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came um, with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. Now, the Babylonian captivity had happened years before as the Persians had kind of taken over the world. And this was a Jewish man named Nehemiah that was one of the captives. And he's now living in Persia. And um, verse 11 tells us, you know, what he was doing. He says, for I was the, the king's cupbearer. Now, a cupbearer is, you know, doesn't sound too impressive. Maybe you think it's kind of like, you know, some kind of a busboy or something, okay? Nothing wrong with being a busboy. I was one, okay? But it sounds, it, it sounds like that, but that's not the case. This is a position of very high prominence. It's, it's, a, it's a position of real great importance. And in the Persian court, the, the cupbearer was like, kind of like the head of the secret service for us, okay? Um, you know, for the whole palace. Nothing got into the presence of the king without first passing through the approval of the cupbearer. You know, no document, no visitor, no food, no drink. Nobody got into the presence of the king without first getting... And so this was to protect the king. And uh, the cupbearer would, would sample wine and he would sample the food and, you know, any of that before it ever got to the king. According to historians, the, the only person closer to the Persian king was the king's spouse, the king's wife. So this guy is in a very, very prominent position and he probably had a very, very good life. Right? He's eating the king's food. He's in the trappings of the palace. He's got you know, pretty much everything going for him. And then this, people, this group of people come to him from Jerusalem, and Nehemiah has questions for them. And he says, hey, hey what's, what's going on back home? You know, what's going on with the Jews who escaped? The, the, you know, what's this, this devastated city, what's the situation back there? Any security? What's, what's going on? Now, Nehemiah, being like in charge of security for the palace... 
It would, he would naturally be thinking along those lines, right? He's, you know, he's, he's, he's you know, but, but we might, we got to also ask ourselves, why would he even care after all? He's, he's got, he's, you know, 540 miles away and he's got a great life and he's got a great job and he's got great benefits. Why even concern himself with any of this? There's an old tradition that goes like this. The Jew never forgets Jerusalem and because Jerusalem is the heart of God's program on the earth. If you didn't know that, I'm going to point that out to you right now that, um, in fact, let's, let's take a detour for a second. See if I can read this without my... Zechariah is a great place to go, the prophet Zechariah. Um, it's a hard one to find. Zechariah, chapter 12. Just let me just read something to you. The prophet Zechariah. Behold, this is, this is God speaking through the prophet Zechariah. If you have any questions about what God's viewpoint about Jerusalem and its future for our planet, here's what God says. This is 520 years before Jesus, so this is 2,500 years ago. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples, all who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. This little town, this little city that doesn't have a port, there's no shipping through there, it's not the center of trade, it's not of really any strategic value. And in fact, at the time, it didn't have the crops. That it had. I mean, God is saying that this little town that has nothing is going to become the focal point of pebble of the stone of every nation on the earth, and they're going to all gather against it. Jewish tradition understands that God is about that city. It's holy to God, and there's a lot of reasons, and they're sovereign. Anyway, so um, there's a rabbit trail that's calling me, and I want to talk about the fact that um, the scripture tells us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. It, it tells us to do that, and um, there's, there's, there's good reasons for that. You'll be blessed if there's peace in Jerusalem. And um, Things like, without respect to your political persuasions, whether our, our embassy should be moved there or not, I, I'm telling you, there are no nations standing with the nation of Israel but one right now. And um, the day will come when this nation doesn't stand with Jerusalem anyway. Anyway, that's a rabbit trail, a discussion for another time. But he understood that the Jew never forgets. In fact, Psalm 137, here's a, the talk, talks about that. It says, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. And if I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. So Nehemiah is concerned about his homeland, this, this city of God's program, and he starts asking questions. Now, maybe you've noticed sometimes some people will not ask questions because they don't want to hear the answer, right? I mean, sometimes people, they just rather not know the, uh, the, the answer, because if you don't tell me that, I don't want to know about it, because there's this possibility that when you get the answer to something, you'll have this new obligation that comes with what you've just found out. But he wants to know. So he asks these questions. He wants to know, and he cares about what he was going to find out. You, you might be aware of that the fact that every day, um, the United States Director of National Intelligence puts together something called the PDB, the President's Daily Brief. The President sees it. Um, there's a handful of people that see it. Uh, I think this, you know, it's probably six or eight people at least, whoever the President would designate. And every day, every morning, they go over this information and it describes the, 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 the security threats that are accumulating against the United States of America. And as of last Wednesday... Um, uh, the, the list is published by, but not, not the document, it's classified, but there's a list called the, um, the, the people, the, 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 they're called foreign terrorist organizations. You can find it on the State Department. And as of last Wednesday, the list had 61 foreign terrorist organizations. These are organizations around the world who disagree with the way you live and they want to harm you because they don't like it so much. 61 organizations around the world. So I'm, you know, they want to attack us, they want to attack our way of life. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that we, we have a system in place where leaders in our nation um, watch those kinds of things so that they can protect us. Protect us. And um, I think you and I need to have that kind of a spiritual briefing sometimes, maybe consistently, to protect ourselves and our families. 
Because there's a lot of people in our culture who today, just like the people in Jerusalem, they think they're safe. They think they're safe. And all the while, there is an enemy who, Scripture says, roams around seeking whom he may devour, who's bent, who's bent on derailing your life and derailing your eternity if he can. And so notice the condition that they're in. It says, um, verse, verse 3, And they said to me, The survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. And the briefing goes on to describe the city. It says, The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. If, if you know your history, um, in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, who was this Babylonian king, he attacks Jerusalem. He breaks down the walls and he, he breaches in, and in they go and they burn down the city and they destroy the gates. Now, when Nehemiah gets this intelligence briefing, this, this update from his pals who have arrived from, from the area, um, the city is still in this condition. And the people that are still living in Jerusalem are being referred to as survivors. They said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity... There seem to be two groups of people kind of categorized here. The conquerors and the survivors. I consider them for just a minute, the survivors. It's possible to be a survivor. You're surviving. You're not thriving, but you're surviving. And I bring that up because the Apostle Paul talks about Christians. And he describes this a little different than as as you know, differently. We'll listen to this, uh, Romans eight thirty seven. He says, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And that word, more than conquerors, hupernikeo, uh, it, 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 it isn't just um, you've won. It's, it's not just describing you being victorious, victorious by just winning. You've been watching the Olympics. It's, it's not describing the three thousandths of a second victory. It's, the word there means a blowout. It's this decisive, vanquishing victory. That's who Paul, that's who the Holy Spirit says you and I are. Sometimes we don't feel that way. You are. You're, you're more than conquerors. This, this is coming, by the way, from a man, the apostle, this from, from, from Paul. This, he's in prison. He's, he's been beaten. He's on the run. We're more than conquerors. He's thriving. But those in Jerusalem are surviving. They're just surviving. So, which describes you best? Are you just barely making it? Are you, are you surviving? Or are you more than conquerors? And here's the reason why these people were just surviving. The wall is broken. There are these holes in the wall. There are these breaches. The city is, is vulnerable. Terrorists are free to come in and do their thing. And attacks were easily made in any city that wasn't secure. Ancient cities had walls built all around them, and then they would have gates. And you know these, these gates were portals to let people in and out. But don't think of this as a little floppy wooden thing on hinges, okay? That's not what, the, what, a, what a gate was. It was th- okay, the city would be built with big, big walls made of stone, tall and thick, not easily broken through or crossed over. And, and uh, most cities had at least a couple of openings in the gate. There would be, typically there would be openings at a right angle. So you would, you would enter in and into this, in this chamber area and then to, to go actually further into the city, you have to turn either left or right 90 degrees. And if you, when you entered in, into that area, you would see things, there would be like maybe some benches and so forth. And this was the area where the elders... And the city leaders would maybe sit during the day and they would meet and people would show up there and they would have, um, they would share information with each other. They would settle disputes kind of like we would maybe do in court. Um, it was a place there where a lot of that would transpire. But, um, but an army wanting to get in and invade a city would have to, if they, they couldn't go charging through the gates and be inside, they would have to come in, slow down and turn right. And in that time, you know, in, in between them, that gate, there would typically be a door, a big wooden door, many times covered in metal, that it wouldn't, wouldn't easily be broken or burned up. Slow them down. And the point was to capture the enemy in this place of vulnerability, and then from above, you could shoot them with arrows or maybe pour hot oil on them. I mean, it was savage. And it, you, you, you needed to be savage, because if they got in, it was not going to be pretty. So the gates there were broken down. And... Um, 
And that's why the, the, the gatekeepers and the watchmen were so important to keep a city safe from intruders. So, as the gatekeeper of your own soul, and for many, maybe most of you, as a gatekeeper for the soul of other people in your household or in your sphere of influence, what are you letting in the gates? I mean, the ancient people used to describe our seeing and our hearing as eye gates and ear gates, okay? That you get the analogy there. You know, what's getting in the eye gate and what's getting in the ear gate that we ought to not let in? This, this whole concept of intelligence briefings and walls and city gates, you know, the way it works for us spiritually is that, you know, we build up the walls of our lives by, by, by regular, consistent spiritual disciplines. You're spending time with the Lord, you're building up the walls. You spend time in his word, you are building up the walls. You, 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 live with a, you spend time with other people and you encourage them to godliness and, and righteousness and you're building up the walls. You know, it, it, it's, 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 when we let God's principles govern and direct us, we're building up spiritual walls. It's really good. But we also have to guard these gates. You know, what we see and what we hear. What do you see on television? What do you see on the movies? What do you see when you get email or, um, you know, in the newspapers or the magazines or, 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 or gossip? What's coming into the eye gates and the ear gates? You know, all of those things that you allow to go in through those gates come into you and they affect your soul. They do. So what good does it do to build up all the walls and do all that spiritual construction if the gates are just open all the time and you let everything in. Anyway, so listen to this very colorful description from King Solomon. Here is today's proverb of the day. I love how this fits. Proverbs 20 day, 25, 28. Whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. Exactly, on, 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 on the mark. Way to go, God. Solomon is just talking about this person who has no self-control and then they just leave themselves open to ruin and they're a victim of what they see and what they do, what they hear. So number one, we need to ask the right questions. What's going on? I need to know what's going on back there. And uh, then asking the right questions should lead to the right reaction to what you now know. So let's see what Nehemiah does with this in verse three and four. And he said, and they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Verse four, so it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. That is a fairly strong emotional response from this very highly placed political figure in a Persian court. And it's a righteous reaction. I love the fact that he doesn't hear about this and go, oh, well, que sera, sera. You know, he is gripped emotionally. And then he allows his reaction to this information to, to, to craft a course of action in his, his life. Number three, the third thing to do is to take the right action. Do you allow yourself to react to information so much that it trickles down to your feet and it causes something to happen for you to take action? I mean, Matthew um, um, records a lot of instances in his gospel where Jesus is, is, says he's, is, the phrase is, Jesus was moved with compassion. You know, he has a multitude around him that says he's, he's moved with compassion. He never saw a crowd and, and said, you know, I hate crowds. Can't you guys just keep these people away from me? That, that's never that. He's moved with compassion. Feed them. We don't have enough food. Yeah, 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 come on. We got faith. We can do this. And, you know, that, and that's the reason why he sent the 12 disciples out was to help people to address the problems. So what, what is it that moves you? What alarms you? What moves you? Because whatever it is that alarms you, you know, whatever it is that moves you, that's going to determine your course of action. So I'm going to share a few statistics about our culture with you. And um, I'm going to ask you later if you're alarmed by these, okay? 
So I'm going to read some examples of something that I'm, that I'm calling soul robbers, okay? So buckle up, okay? In 2017, the top Google keyword searches, a keyword is what Google's engine uses to, to, to research. The top, top uh, last year, the top searches, top search word, porn. Second top search word, porno. Third top search word, XXX. Four translate, five maps, six weather, seven free porn, eight si sex, nine news, ten iPhone. <laughs> Another form of porn, I think, maybe. <laughs> I don't mean to, I shouldn't joke about that. Okay, here we go. Over 30% of all data transferred across the internet is porn related. In 2016, the world, just this one, the world's largest porn site, reported that they, in that year, they had four, just under 4.6 billion hours of porn watched on that one site. That one site alone comes up, statistically, would say that, that um, on the average, 12.5 videos watched for every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth on that one website. That's the average to tell you how much of this is going on. The largest group of internet porn users, children between ages of 12 and 17. 64% between ages 13 and 24, that's two thirds almost, actively seek porn weekly or more often. A majority, this is scares me, a majority of ages 13 to 24 think not recycling, this is a quote, not recycling is more immoral than viewing pornography. Are you alarmed yet? Okay, so nobody move, nobody look around, okay? Almost half of men in church struggle with pornography. Now, before you ladies think it's a guy thing, it's over 34% for women in church and growing. According to, to the Barna Research um, Institute, 38% of Americans find nothing morally wrong with this. What's the big deal? That's what 38% of Americans would say. Here's what the big deal is. Porn rewires a person's sexual template. It rewires and it reprograms the way we think about something that was designed by God and it's beautiful. And it's, it's supposed to be a blessing, a gift. Here's some more statistics. Pornography use increases marital infidelity over 300%. And it's basically, it's progressive and addictive for many people. I can tell you how many people I've talked to who have become addicted. It, it just seems that the walls are broken down and the gates are burned with fire. One in five children have been propositioned for cyber sex on the internet. One in five. And you might ask the question, where does this happen? It happens in your home. 79% of unwanted exposure of youth to pornography occurs on home computers. 79%. 70% of sexual advances over the internet are while kids are on their home computers. Do you know um, what the letters POS mean to your children? It means parent over shoulder. It's, in other words, it's change the conversation. Mom or dad just walked into the room. Do you realize the youth of today have come up with a code language system on how to handle you in their lives? The walls are broken down and the gates are burned with fire. All of this, you know, all of this exposure, all of this skews our thinking, it corrupts our heart and it cuts our soul. It changes the way men think about women. It changes the way men act towards women. It changes the way women think about men. It changes the way children think about marriage. It changes the way a husband looks at his wife. It changes women's attitude towards it. Just, it just, and, and at this point, children are learning what is morally right and what is morally wrong. And all of that's being skewed. Now, <laughs> everybody take a deep breath. Let's move past that, okay? I mean, this information I just shared um, should lead to the reaction. And as, you know, 
How alarmed are we about this? Are we going to go, okay, Sarah, Sarah, or are we going to say, this, that's, that's okay, I'm listening, God. I, I got to have a plan. Are we going to be like Nehemiah? Are we going to say, okay, let's move on. Let's go get coffee. That was uncomfortable. There's donuts after church, which there are, by the way. Make sure you have a donut after church. But, but like Nehemiah, the news that he heard just generated this deep reaction down in his soul, followed by some sort of action. He's got to do something about it. So before he does anything, some, something of resolve just kind of welds up in him. This, you can almost see his back straightening out like, mm. and he's ready for a, an alley fight and he's going to act and he's going he's to come out of this. And he decides, of course, so he decides to do two things. One is spiritual, one's practical. He reaches up towards God, then he reaches out to fix the problem. Um, verse five. I need a drink of water. Excuse me. Like drinking water with an audience. It's really great. <laughs> okay. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, I'm quoting you now, God. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. They're scattered at this point, right? But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. That promise is his life today. Those are the words of God. And here's what God was saying. You cannot get so far away from me that I cannot pull you back in. I'm going to stop reading this passage right there for just a moment and say to you about this. I think this topic is humiliating and I don't want to dwell on it, but I just want to say to you, the enemy intends it to divide you from God. And... It's a shame-filled topic, but it's not so far away from God that when you turn to him, he can't pull you back and miraculously deliver you. Amen. I have also spoken to many, many men who have said to me, I've got, I've got a problem with this, I don't know how to stop it, and watch the Lord deliver them. I mean deliver them. I talked about it with one brother this morning, and that can be anyone here. You should have hope. You should have hope in this prayer. Verse 10, now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name and let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man for I was the king's cupbearer. So the first thing he does, and it's recorded here in, in this book, in fact, it's 11% of the whole book, is he prays to God. It shows you his reaction when there's a problem, the first thing he does with the problem is he goes to God. And then it shows where his priorities were. He knows this guy was smart. He knew that prayer is where it starts. And, and look at the language that he's using. He doesn't say, Lord, I'm praying for those people. You know, they're so bad. <laughs> he uses we language. He says, I, my father's house, we have sinned. He, this guy is not a finger pointer. He's, he's part of the problem. He admits it. So now he can be a part of the solution. And I, I encourage, I mean, I encourage you parents to pray every single day for your own souls and for the souls and the minds and the hearts of your children. And I think it'd be really good for you to do it out loud in front of them. You know, and use we language, not just they, them, and those. I mean, use Lord, forgive us, forgive me. I mean, humble yourself in, in front of, in the eyes of your children and in the eyes of the king, in their presence. And that's how your children are going to get it. They're going to see, oh, this is how you relate to God. 
in humility and in trust and in faith. And when they see your deliverance, now, by the way, I'm not telling you to go confess your sins to your children. Sometimes you do that. It needs to be done wisely. But I'm just saying the prayer of repentance is something your kids need to see. It needs to genuinely happen in your life, and they need to witness it. That's how they'll learn to do it. Anyway, that's what Nehemiah does. And then he gets practical, verses 5 and 6. He's standing before the king in his, you know, he's, he, in his authority as the cupbearer. You know. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah to the city of my father's tombs that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, time out, there's a rabbit trail. I won't stay long on this one. I'll tell you how wise it is to include the spouse. There are some decisions that are really important that husband and wife need to be on the same page. I mean, this has nothing to do with this message, but I learned a long time ago when, I mean, I've hired a lot of pastors over the years for different positions in churches. And I, I can't think of a single time, in fact, I'm certain of this, I never a single time ever just talked to the candidate. I spent just as much time with the spouse you can find out what's real in a man's life by looking into his wife's eyes. <laughs> you can't. Anyway, so it's wise for him to talk to the king about this important decision with the queen right there too. Because if the king thinks, sure, you're my pal, whatever, the, the, sometimes the, the queen will sense things that the king won't know. And she'll say, hey, 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 you weren't thinking about this, were you? And then, you know, then it all can melt down. So it's smart. He's talking to them both. They're both together. How long will your journey be? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Now, so the steps for this guy is he, you know, Nehemiah, he, he sits down and he weeps. He, he, he prays, and then he stands up and he goes to work. This, he knew that you can only agonize about the misery around you for so long, and then it's time to get organized and get going. He cries out, God, this is terrible. But he doesn't camp out there. He doesn't live there. He decides to do something, and he acts very decisively and really responsibly. He says, send me. I want to go fix this. I want to go rebuild this, this, this wall. And so what do we do? What do we do in our families about the soul robbers that we know are present? You know, because of all this information that, 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 I, that we've just heard, we act decisively and responsibly. So I've got a couple of suggestions for you. These are just some suggestions, some starting points for one. First off, um, I printed out two articles. They're available for you. They're printed and they're sitting on a table in the foyer. Just go get them if you want them. Um, and nobody judge anybody else who goes and picks up a piece of paper, right? Nobody judge anybody else anyway. <laughs> but we should absolutely be supportive of each other who want to build our houses up. But here are the two, ar two art titles of the two articles. This one, they're, they're just a couple pages each. Uh, pr protecting children from pornography. Whether you have children now, or you're a grandparent now, or you know somebody with children, this is relevant for everybody in this room. The other, eight ways to help cure your teen's screen addiction. I guess it could work for people who aren't teens anymore, too. Um, there is so much information available to help you on the topic of, of, of protecting your home. Um, these are just two places that I hope will help you get started. Anyway, so that's one idea. Um, pick those up after church. They're sitting out there on the table. If we run out, we'll print some more. Second thing is this. You can act decisively in your own home. You know, there are probably certain channels that you ought to block. You know? And you probably know which channels I mean. And you can probably block them with your remote, or you can call the company. You know, and maybe you're thinking, but, but you know what? But I'm paying for those. Is that your argument for keeping them? I'm <laughs> Don't pay for them. Um, you know, or you could, another thing to do would be to set a TV schedule, you know, in your house would say, you know what, we watch TV, but after X certain o'clock at night, we don't. And you make a decision about what's right for your family. You should draw the line of what's right for your family, not the networks. They cannot be trusted to decide for you what's appropriate for your children. <laughs> so 
And, and here's another one, and I, this is something that I encourage. Get yourself an accountability partner for the internet if need be. Here's what I mean by that. There are programs that you can get. They're not expensive. Um, one, that's, one that I've heard of before and can recommend is called CovenantEyes.com. And what you do is you put that into your equipment and you have an accountability buddy um, of the same gender you are, by the way. You don't need to have an opposite gender accountability partner for your sexual... Forget it. I don't, I don't want to finish that sentence. Um, um, the way that it works is it keeps track of every website you go to. And then at the end of the month, it sends a list to your accountability person. They look the list and they go, wait a minute, what's, what's this? And they can call you up and say, hey, hey Terry, what's, what's this website? What's going on here? That's how accountability works. Okay? It's, it's just... It's just, a, that's another suggestion. In, in the Sermon of the Mount, on the Mount, Jesus gets on this topic. And um, he's talking to the men of that day. As you find this in Matthew chapter 5. And Jesus is talking. And he says, you've heard that it said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. <laughs> They're good so far. They're stroking their beards. Yep. That's what it says, Jesus. Keep going. Preach. <laughs> But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. At that moment, every man in that audience is kind of back on their heels, like, what, 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 what just happened here? And the ones that were sincere and honest with themselves were thinking, oh, I'm, I'm guilty. What do I do now? Jesus tells them what to do now. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. How's that for going to the bottom line and cutting to the chase? Jesus is right now gone to the bottom line. He keeps going. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, cast it from you, for it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Now we read that and we're a bit shocked, right? This is where you nod. Yeah, right? Uh, this is not the Lord telling you to go home and dig your eyeball out, okay? <laughs> All right? But this shocks us to hear this coming from our Savior. This is so graphic. It's scary. And that is exactly the reaction he wants. Jesus is basically saying, deal radically with sin. Radically. Do not compromise with sin. There is no compromise with it. Avoid it at all costs. Do whatever you've got to do to deal with it. Martin Luther, um, said, he said this. He said, you can't stop birds from flying over your head, but you can stop them from building a nest in your hair. <laughs> your hair is in your control. You've got to deal with it. Here's what the, here's what the scriptures are t speaking to us today. Children, deal with this. He's, God is saying to us kids, deal with this before I have to. I heard this story about a uh, physician who called his doctor one night in the middle of the night, and he was pretty distressed. The doctor had been just called to the hospital for an emergency. Um, he was a surgeon. And a, a young woman had been brought into the hospital, and she had been beaten pretty mercilessly, mercilessly and beyond recognition, and she had broken bones and was in terrible rough shape. And... Um, as they got her into the, the operating room, they, 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 they were losing her. And they concluded that the only hope was direct cardiac massage. Now, if you don't know what that means, is that's, that's where they crack open the chest and they literally squeeze the heart. They gently squeeze the heart to try to create it, to, to get the pumping motion to continue. And um, so they did it. They opened her up and they massaged her heart. And, the, and this, this, tragically, this woman didn't make it. She, she, she died. And as they were trying to figure out who the lady was, they were going through her personal effects, they were going through her purse, and as they were going through the purse, they started encountering used syringes and some other things that um, they found that she was HIV positive. And then the tragedy went to another whole level because the doctor now is telling the story to the pastor, and he says, you know, as, as, as we were doing this operation, we were in a desperate hurry and I cut my finger. 
cut through the glove as he was putting his hand in on one of the sharp edges of the broken ribs. It cut through, and and um, the doctor, the the, the the pastor, not you know being a physician, not knowing the deal, says, "Well, you know, how big a deal is a little cut?" And the doctor says, "Well, you don't understand. Direct blood-to-blood contact, even something as small as a paper cut, is enough to transfer the virus that transmits that, that carries." HIV and AIDS. How many paper-thin cuts to our soul are okay with us? A little tiny infection, a little tiny contact that comes in through the eye gate or through the ear gates, but goes right straight into the lifeblood. Here's, here's what I want to leave you with today. Romans. 37. I love the Apostle Paul. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the good news. I encourage you, like Nehemiah, to find your way to say to the Lord today, tonight, this sometime this week, God, I want to rebuild walls. I want to fix broken down gates. I want to I I find ways. Give me the strength to shut the gates where they need to be shut. And Lord, help me protect my soul and my family's soul. Let's pray. So Lord... Um, It's hard to get this kind of news. It's, we see the evidence in our culture around us of things breaking down, and it's easy to point fingers everywhere except at us. God, forgive us. Forgive me, Lord, for the times in my life where I've allowed my eye gate and my ear gate to feed something that moves me further away from you, that doesn't bring me closer to you. Forgive me for that, Lord. Forgive us for that, God. For, forgive the, the men and the women in this room who, God, we've fed things that ought not be fed while choking off other things that deserve the light of day. So, Lord, it's been a difficult morning, and I, I intentionally brought things into the light because there are things that will not thrive in the light that, that like to live in the dark. And coming into the light, Lord, is, is our call. You've called for us to be salt and light. Lord, let that be who we are. Let that be who we are. And Lord, I ask you to forgive us, and I'm so grateful to hear and agree with um, the prayers that Nehemiah prayed where he reminded you of your words that no matter how far we get from you, if we will turn to you, you will gather us back to you. Gather us back, Lord, I pray. Gather our children back. Give us wisdom as parents where we have failed to to protect the gates of our own household. Give us wisdom about how to rebuild that and how to lead our children, how to lead our friends, how to lead those with whom we have influenced God back to the places where we maybe have participated in somehow failing you in that and them. Forgive us for that, Lord, but also, Lord, to speak to us and show us how. God, I thank you for the fact that there is no sin so great that you cannot forgive or will not forgive us. So we come into the loving, loving hands of a God who loves us. We pray these things in Jesus' name.